0: From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Women make up about 50% of modern newsroom staffs, and maybe a little bit more than that, but still only about 25% of newsroom leadership positions. And of course, this isn't anything new or unique to journalism. Women are underrepresented in leadership positions in pretty much every industry and have been excluded from many positions or pigeonholed into others for most of our modern history. Until the latter few decades of the last century, many women journalists were confined to writing about gossip, fashion, advice, and other subjects that were deemed by overwhelmingly male editors to be appropriate for women readers. But journalism is an industry that is built on the notion of writing the first draft of history, and so it's important to consider what might have been left out of history, because women were left out of newsrooms. To piece that together, it's important to know the stories of the women who did break through and when they broke through and the context in which they broke through. And that's the story that Brooke Kroger has pieced together in her new book, Undaunted, How Women Changed American Journalism. Kroger is a journalist, a longtime journalism educator, and the author of six books, several of which are about the history of women in journalism, Brooke Kroger, welcome. Thank you. It's
1: very nice to be here. Brooke,
0: you started your career in New York for Newsday and then for UPI, the wire service. You were all around the world. This was in the 70s and 80s, and I was I was hoping we could start this conversation today about You know, like the unwritten rules that you learned about as you came up in this profession, the rules for women reporters at at that time.
1: Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I started in Chicago. I was there for five years. It was Vietnam era. Lots of men either drafted or about to be drafted. So opportunity for women flourished. And by the time I got to Europe, I was a journeyman. Then after two years, three years, they sent me to Tel Aviv with the intention of becoming bureau chief, but with a year overlap by my predecessor, who I loved. And so, of course, after he left, I went through his files, as one does, and <laughs> at least as I did. And because you're a, a reporter, <laughs> and that's what we do, <laughs> exactly. right? We just do that. And um, I find a letter he has written to our division chief in London. The job I took next. And it says, you know, we love Brooke, but she's got a three-year-old, or, you know, Brett was four by then. How, how, How is she going to do this job? This bureau is 24-7. Our staff is small. Blah, blah, blah. And uh, the division chief, Leon Daniel, may he rest in peace, uh, writes back, as he always did, one sentence, a short one, in active voice, and it said, you're not going to have to worry about Brooke, L.D. And reading that, you can't imagine the relief to have your boss respond to you in that way, you know, about you, about your work. Um, so those are two examples. Um, when I left Tel Aviv after four years, but the U.S. ambassador to say goodbye, this is after four years of war in Lebanon, Camp David Accord, Sabra and Shatila, Sadat's assassination, <laughs> there was a whole lot going on. And all he could say was, we are going to miss Brooke's legs. That <gasps> was all he had. And I was the only woman in the Tel Aviv press corps. I was the only woman in the permanent press corps. So, uh, and what did I say? Nothing. Because that's what you did.
0: Being in Israel at a time like that, I mean, just, just so much history is happening. Um, but Women around the world were still like vastly underrepresented in newsrooms. Did you viscerally feel like you were part of history, that you were making history?
1: No, not at all. But in Europe, in those days, being at United Press, a failing organization that was always cash-starved, there was plenty of opportunity for women, plenty. And so by the time I became division chief, our division was Europe- Middle East and Africa. So it was London to Johannesburg to Moscow. I think more than half the women, half the bureau chiefs were women in, in the bureaus across uh, the, the, the continents. And that is one of the themes of the book, not to talk about myself anymore, because <laughs> I'm really not in this book. <laughs> but um, that fact of opportunity came from the fact that the company was willing to look wider, because to get really good talent... They found it in women because they were not going to attract, you know, what we call the alpha males, the white alpha males who would always be at the top of the queue. So when you're cash starved or you're in some sort of failure mode, you look whiter.
0: I want to understand a little about how you got so interested in this subject Um, in the (laughs) In the early 1990s, you began working on a book about Nellie Bly. I've, I've often thought that Nellie Bly is like a gateway drug into journalism history. Uh, you might be partially responsible for that, by the way, because you added I a lot I to your story. I,
1: I believe I am. I believe I am. I mean, it does predate me for sure, and I can tell you how I know that, but um, I helped it
0: along. I did. It's a fact. What brought you to Nellie Bly?
1: So Nellie Bly was my childhood hero. I read a juvenile biography when I was, you know, eight, nine, or 10. And I thought, oh, there are things women can do besides nursing and teaching, which was kind of what 50s girls thought that were possible if they wanted to work. And then I had a daughter who I've already talked about, and uh, she gets to be eight, nine, or 10. And there's a school project to do a famous woman. And I said, Oh, Brett, you should do Nellie Bly. She was mom's childhood hero, who I hadn't really thought about a lot since those days. And so we went looking for research material. And we went to the local bookstore and had them run an ad in the antique trader, which is what you did. And so she's doing her, you know, research. And it's clear that they don't agree about numerous facts of her life. And so Brett says, Mom, you should write a real book. And I thought, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> and that was it. And there was, by looking at newspapers, I could see that there was a really strong newspaper record because her name was in the headline of almost every story she ever wrote. So if you have the eyesight <laughs> to do that microfilm, <laughs> which you know I almost had, um, I just did it page by page by page to Drudge out about six hundred articles and another thousand about her, and in the end, I'd amassed about two hundred letters, uh, which of course is very little on working on a biography. It became just this insane, passionate endeavor, and um, I, I did nothing else for those three years—just day and night worked on this book. And um, and it was interesting when I proposed the idea to the agent. You know, her first question was, that's a great idea. How come no one's ever done that? And, of course, we figured out why, because it was really hellish to do.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it was really hard. Well, let's talk about one of these women who seems to have had a sense of her own importance. Who's that? Margaret Fuller, who's... Oh, you bet. (laughs) ...often considered to be such a trailblazer in this field, um, but sort of got into it because... She believed that she had a place at the table. In fact, she, her hero of the day was Ralph Waldo Emerson. And you wrote that she practically stalked, stalked him. Stalked
1: him. She totally stalked him. I mean, this is another theme of the book, is that many of the women I talk about, most of them are just master networkers. A couple of them fumble into things, you know, like don't have that eighth sense, whatever that sense is to know how to get yourself in front of the people who can help you the most. But Margaret Fuller, in her way, was masterful at this. Uh, But she had the goods. I mean, that's the most important part of the theme. She was surpassingly brilliant. And everyone recognized that. People just recognized it on sight. And so you have Nathaniel Hawthorne and Horace Greeley and all these men who were just completely taken with her. But we are not talking about a raving beauty. We are talking about a really homely girl with off-putting quirks and an irritating style that everybody talks about, Yeah, including I mean like herself, I, including
0: herself. Emerson wrote, or maybe Emerson's wife, I can't remember, um, but you wrote about this. Uh, like she had this bl- weird blinking habit.
1: Blinking and, um, and kind of uh, sardonic, <clears throat> full of gossip, things that Emerson really did not admire. And yet, after two weeks in his home, on the invitation of his wife, um, he was completely in her thrall, just like everybody else. And in in those cases, in the case of Emerson and Horace Greeley, who gave her her first big, you know, newspaper post, she became the literary editor of the Tribune, which was the most widely read and circulated paper in the country in eighteen forty forty two. And Emerson made her the editor of the Dial. In the couple of years before that, and so those two positions really catapulted her into this world. And one well, of and her at, goals... the, at
0: the Tribune, she was really she was really working to highlight the stories of the the people at the margin. I mean, look, one of her pet passions was the prostitutes of New York City. Correct,
1: correct. And so she went through all the social service agencies and nonprofit charitable organizations and you know really reported on their work she was you're absolutely right she was very interested in prostitutes that came from the time she spent in Fishkill which is near Sing Sing and had been connected to them through a project they were doing where they were writing memoirs and so she had seen some of that work so that's part of where that fascination came from so you know her ending is tragic but the career in the short time it was a career is really remarkable and then not only that when she dies, I'm going to save that story, but when she dies, um, it's Greeley and Emerson. They're all running to Long Island, and they are immediately embarking on a two-volume memoir of her that is a pastiche of her articles and letters to her and letters from her. And well,
0: Greeley calls for it in, it in her obituary, right? Like he, he calls for someone to do her memoir, and, and Emerson takes up the charge.
1: Uh, yeah, everyone takes up the charge. There's like four of them working on it, Channing and a few others. And, and they produce it, um, you know, to better or worse effect, but they do it. And I mean, who does that? Think about that for a minute. It's men who are just completely admiring of this woman who doesn't really have many feminine wiles. It's pretty remarkable considering the times, don't you think?
0: Yeah. A lot of these women at the time were not. Signing their names to what they were writing. This is part and parcel to what you were talking about earlier. Some were, but even Fuller was like used an asterisk often, right?
1: She used the asterisk. Yeah, I love that. And she called it the star. (laughs) 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 She had a sense of, she had a sense of her worth. She had a sense of it. You know, pay was impartial in those days. Pay was impartial until the late 1880s. There was no distinction in money, and many women were earning much more than men. I'm thinking Fanny Fern, who I don't write about, but Fanny Fern, for one, was earning like $100 an article in the 1850s. I mean, think about what that, I do the math, yeah. Mary Um, Clemmer,
0: right? Mary Clemmer was one of these. Mary Clemmer
1: was earning over $5,000 a year. I mean, yeah. Uh, Gail Hamilton, uh, Grace Greenwood, I was going to leave out the 1860s and 70s because no one talks about them very much. There's some really good scholarship on them. I don't mean to say that. But, you know, they're sort of not on people's scope so much. We kind of skip from Fuller to Nellie Bly, which is already 1885 and beyond. Um, But so I was thinking, okay, I'm just going to do a couple of paragraphs about this. Those women are fantastic. The way they found their way in, the money they earned, who they worked for? The Atlantic, the New York Times. I mean, they were phenomenal. And then Mitty Morgan. Did you run into her, the yeah. livestock reporter?
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mitty Morgan was so six great. foot tall from Ireland, right?
1: Yep, yep. And and of the landed gentry, but lost her. You know, the the brother, uh, of course, inherited everything. So she and her sister trot off to Italy for a couple of years, and they're hanging out with you know the the noble class, because they, they are of the class. And she gets to know the king who needs horses. So she goes to Ireland to pick the horses and shepherds them back to Italy. And he gives her this beautiful emerald bracelet. I mean, it's just like fantastic. Pauline Frederick, you know, who should have had a, a, a fantastic career immediately. She's the same age as Martha Gelhorn but gets, you know, just caught up in the depression in a way that Martha Gellhorn does not. Martha Gellhorn has a lot of privilege that others don't have, which isn't to take anything away from her talent. But, you know, she could have the president write a letter for her when she went off to Europe to make sure all the embassies gave her courtesies. Not many people were in that kind of position. And Pauline Frederick was not.
0: And yet still still exploited, though, Martha Gellhorn. I mean, by most notably by Ernest Hemingway.
1: Yeah. Terrible. Terrible. Uh, yeah. That's, that's a terrible story. <laughs> but, but what does she do? She just turns that on its head. She does the story from D-Day that we remember, not him. So there you go.
0: So Gellhorn, Mitty Morgan, uh, Nixel, Greeley Smith. I mean, like all, of, like, I feel like all of these women are due for like one of those great biopic movies. Right. like
1: Yeah. And they never happen and you know, they never quite happen. I think Nellie Bly has been optioned about six times. You know, it just never happened. But um, the idea is great. And people often will have that idea. I mean, it's hard to imagine this entire panoply ending up in one movie. There's too many of them.
0: Well, it's hard to imagine them all ending up in one book. And I, I assume at some point, well, now I, I should say this: you didn't come up with this book per se you were contacted by someone who was like hey this is an editor you hadn't worked with before yeah, he, w-
1: he would never say hey that's the wrong <laughs> guy <No. laughs> it, was, it was far more formal yeah. I mean,
0: I'm paraphrasing He's here, here hey but, no. but, but like why don't you write this book about no 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 women? no no he
1: did no 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 and no one says that he said <laughs> I am keen to commission a book <laughs> of this nature. Would you be interested in discussing it?
0: I am keen to commission. Okay, so so he is not hey you. He, I am not keen hey, to you. commission. No, no, no. Correct. T- <laughs> no, so so he is keen to commission this book. And mm-hmm. I mean, and and pardon sort of the the titular reference here, but this sounds very daunting, like writing a book about <laughs>
1: Oh, can we talk about daunting? So I really wanted to call this book Dauntless. I thought dauntless was the better word. It's
0: a great, because great word.
1: Dauntless means get out of my way. Undaunted means without fear. But I was overruled.
0: As, as happens a in publishing title. sometimes. Yeah. But, yeah. It's, right, a, it's a yeah. good
1: title. But, you know, without fear, yeah. But they really were get out of my way. And and I thought that was, but I think it's a less familiar word. You know, it doesn't quite compute as easily.
0: So where, how do you, I mean, you, you said, you know, you have this approach, this chronological approach, and you take this in the book. You go decade by decade, and I think it's a really effective way to do this. Some but... might call it plotting. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, but But the truth of the matter is, is you've got to get through a lot of material because there are a lot of women who left indelible marks on our industry and on our history.
1: Matthew, I left out 40,000 words. I deducted (laughs) 40,000 words and it's still crowded. You know, it's just so so here's the thing. It's not a book about the women per se. It's about what was happening in each of these decades that advanced or setback or illustrated or astounded about that time for women in a field where they have never found easy welcome. That, that's what the book is about. So the examples the examples come out of that. They come out of, okay, I, I paid no attention to whether they were famous or not famous. Well, of course, I paid some attention to famous because if the men were talking about you, if the men were awarding you Pulitzer Prizes at a time when that was really not easy. But really, I was looking for illustrative moments that kind of captured what I was seeing in each decade.
0: So you you had done this biography of Nellie Bly and one of Fanny Hurst. And was there someone who came to your attention um, along the way that you went, wow, I did, like that? I mean, all of these women, I think, as we've said, are are probably deserving of a biography. But is there one that we went, man, like if I if I work on another book, <laughs> that's going to be that's yeah, going to be the no, one. No,
1: not working on <laughs> another one of these. Uh, no. But uh, this was like, yeah, I kind of feel like I've done this. But I, there are several women in this book who really stand out to me um, for the kinds of reporters they were. Many of them overcame. More than others. So I think that appeals to me. You know, they're women from nowhere who just made their way. And the neat thing about the chronology is that for me, having gone back as far as 1840 and forward to now, is that you see the patterns. You know, the patterns become very clear. And I've talked about this before, but progress setback, progress setback. I mean, right to the present, right to the present. And then also, this sort of gender race theme that we get through the whole book, which I thought was, to me, was fascinating. Uh, Things like that, which wouldn't have come through and have never come through to me in quite that way, because I've never done 180 years before. And, you know, being methodical about it was, was a a gift to me. What
0: did that, process do in terms of your own thoughts about the place in history in which you entered this profession because as as you said this was a time during the Vietnam War where there were and during sort of the the struggles of UPI to keep long-term staff members in which there were a lot of opportunities for women and then you go back and you do this long history this long chronology of all of these women who had brought us to that point? How, how did you start thinking about your own career in, in light of that?
1: Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I think of myself as infantry. You know, I just love what I do. I love what I did. it. I've done it to the best of my ability, and that's all that really mattered to me ever. Um, I think what was interesting to me, I'm not sure this answers your question, but I think it's interesting to say, so I'll say it, that Women who were extraordinary, like Margaret Fuller, like Mitty Morgan, they were either extraordinary because they had surpassing genius, as I described Margaret Fuller, or they had expert knowledge, like Mitty Morgan, who was an agriculturalist and an equestrian and had things nobody else had to give. So, you know, you get that job because there isn't a man who can match you in skills. So, you know, there was real background which would give women a leg up or in going abroad, they had the languages, they were polyglots, they had something that set them apart from the pack. And those women always excelled. But it's interesting that the first women who get on the masthead at the times, neither of them was seen as a contender for the top position, not by management and not by themselves. They didn't see themselves that way. And that had to do also with their profile within the organization. But in addition to that, those are the women that first are on the track, but the, it's a track that stops. So to me, that was interesting. Whereas at other places, women, you know, succeeded to the top and and produced great leadership. I think of Sandy Mims-Rowe, who was, you know, in Virginia and then in Oregon, At papers, brought them around an incredible, really an incredible career. She impresses me very much, uh, as do many of the women I talk about.
0: So there's this long, long period of time where women, as you say it, at the top, like the superstars, the people who brought expertise or who were masters of the stunt or... Or the word
1: or, you know, voice, you know, whatever, but
0: masters. Yeah, the people who... Through hell or high water, came in and said, "I have a place at the table." They, they did. They had a place at the table. And then, for more than a century, there were these, you know, the women's pages. This is where most of the other women were rele- relegated. What was what was the thing that broke this open so that there was more diversity across the ranks of of women?
1: Well, law, you know. Legal suits that indicated women were not getting opportunities that were commensurate with men in the field. So that you know certainly made a difference. And then you know a couple of, there's there's a couple of places in the book where I've got really good responses from women who lived this, you know, a generation before me, um, which is a, you know a really critical time. That as the mass as the mass came because you know they were under organizations were under onus to increase the number of women on their staffs. So as the numbers increase, you find that change is happening, you know, by evolution even, because it gets harder and harder to ignore the dissatisfaction. It becomes harder and harder not to try to please the people you are serving. So, or, you know, who are under your purview. So all those things happen as well. And that's how change starts to happen.
0: That's Brooke Kroger. She's a journalist, a longtime journalism educator, and the author of six books, several of which are about the history of women in journalism, including Undaunted, How Women Changed American Journalism. Brooke Kroger, thank you. Thank you. This was fun. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030 and on KCPW at 10 on Thursday and noon on Sunday. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by public radio listeners like you. So if you're a donor to Utah Public Radio or KCPW in Salt Lake City, we want to thank you. And if you're not, why not? head over to upr.org and click on the donate link and make sure in the comments you let them know that you're a supporter of this program. Our producer is Claire Scott, our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening, and go have big ideas.